I love this series. I got to tell you, when I grew up, I, honestly, guys, for, for those of you who grew up in church like me, I think maybe you'll understand what I'm, I'm about to say. I don't know that I was attracted to the doctrine. I don't have a real analytical brain. I was always attracted to the stories in the Bible. And through my life, I've learned to adore those stories. And let me tell you why. Because, and this goes exactly to what this series is about. Because this story is about four little-known stories. In fact, next week is my favorite. I'll bet you 1% of people in church don't know next week's story. Or only 1% would know, I would say. So the reason why these stories are important is they contain something that's vital to you and me in 2012. And that is they contain principles. Principles are so important. And, and here's the thing about a principle. A principle is a force that God has spun into the universe that will work in any situation. If you plug your life into God's principles, your life will work. If you unplug your life from God's principles, your life won't work. It's that simple. Principles work whether you know them or not. And so that's why I want you to get these, these messages. And, and I really have two function, or have two purposes with this series. Number one is I want you to learn the powerful lessons in these four little-known stories, but I hope that it has a secondary effect which is to, to drive you to explore your Bible. Because the thing of it is, as I live my life and I make decisions every day, I frequently will go back to a Bible story and some element of a Bible story that I've loved since childhood and learned and absorbed the principles in will help me make a decision in 2012. And I know that some of you could look at me and think, wow, that sounds really bizarre, but I promise you, that is true. It, it is amazing how many decisions I make on a daily basis that I'll appeal back to a story. For instance, this is, oh, I don't have time to tell this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I, 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 I did something really dumb as, as, as in, a, in a strategic decision here at New Spring. It wasn't a spiritual decision, just a strategic decision. And, and, and what I did was I, I went about a decision in a way that the corporate world would do it, but it was not a way that I felt was best for a church. And I knew in my heart it was the, right, it was the wrong way to do it, but corporate, in, a, in the corporate world it made all the sense in the world. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to bring back the ark like, I don't want to bring back the ark like the Philistines. Now that's an old story from the Bible where the Israelites tried to bring back the ark the same way the Philistines tried to carry the ark and they suffered as a result. Now that's a story that most people don't know. But in my mind, it became part and parcel of understanding why I made an unwise decision and correcting that decision. I, don't, should I, I shouldn't even have said that. But I just want you to know uh, that these stories that we're going to talk about contain immeasurably important principles for you and I. Now today, we're going to talk about a destitute widow who gets into the oil business. And this is a favorite story of mine. It's in the book 2 Kings chapter 4. And uh, it's all about when your life hits a crisis point. Now, when I mean crisis, I mean you, you get into a situation in life and you don't know what to do. You don't know how you're going to function or how you're going to make it. You don't have the abilities that you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish. You don't have the resources that you need to make it happen. Maybe you didn't get the education that you needed when you were young growing up, but you just have a crisis. I'm not talking about your garden variety trouble that all of us get into from time to time. I'm talking about a crisis point where you think to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to make this, and if God doesn't come in and help me, I'm going to be dead. I've been there a number of times in my life, and here's the thing. You either have been there or you will be there. I, and last night at the end of the service, I talked to a number of people who said, Mark, I'm right there right now. And you may be there right now. You may be in a scenario in which you say, I don't see any way out. Well, today, for all of us who have been there, are there, will be there, we're going to learn a lot of principles from an Old Testament story that is just extraordinary. And I hope you'll, hope you'll love it when it's over as much as I love it. Because it doesn't contain just one principle. It contains many principles. Now, one more thing about principles before I go on. Principles are how God works. 
Most people, even people who are in church, do not understand how God works. They've gotten their concept of God from the culture at large, from television, from Hollywood. They just think God is sort of, and I've said this in the past, they think that God is a Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky that just looks down and sort of has sympathy for everybody, and he will just step in and fix anything that's broken, which is why there's a lot of disillusionment with God. And guys, please, I love you so much. And in fact, this is why I'm preaching this message. I want you to know that God works in very predictable patterns. And we need to understand those patterns if we're going to function successfully in the middle of a crisis. With that in mind, let's jump into 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. One day the widow of a member of the group of the prophets came to Elisha and cried out. And just remember that. We'll need it in about four minutes. Cried out. My husband who served you is dead, and you know how I feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. Now, there are four words that this whole message is going to revolve around. If you're like me and you don't like to take notes, just remember these four words because they'll help us navigate the story and learn the principles. But the first word, without a doubt, is crisis. And this is a crisis. Because here is a, here is a and by the way, let me just make a point. This is not a crisis of, of her own making. It is a surprising crisis. I have had some crises in my life that were of my own making. Refer back to last week. If you were here for the sermon on Balaam, the man who whipped his own, you remember Balaam created a crisis for himself. And here's the thing. When I create my own crisis, I can't claim persecution when I hit the wall. I, I made this. My parents tried to tell me better. My teachers tried to tell me better. My coaches tried to tell me better. My friends tried to tell me better. But I was stubbornly insistent on doing my thing, and I hit the wall. Now, that's not the kind of crisis we're talking about here. There are people who do that. And the Bible says in Proverbs, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. Gosh, that sounds like America in 2012, doesn't it? But this is a very different kind of crisis. Because what we have here is we have a woman who was married to a pastor. And in those days, as it is perhaps today, I remember in the early days of the ministry that money was really, really tight. In fact, there were a lot of times, because I was in a low-income career, there were a lot of times when I didn't know how we were going to pay our bills. I didn't know. I mean, we would get to the end of the month and not have enough money for, for basic things in life. And there were times when I didn't know how we were going to pay our medical bills. And that's what happened with this family, this young minister. He did what we do in America when there's too much month at the end of the money. He borrowed money. And so he figured to himself, I'm young, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the ministry, I'm doing a little farming on the side, I'll find a way to, to pay off this, this note. But he didn't expect to die. And so in our story, this woman married to this minister who passes goes out to the cemetery. I hope you can kind of see her dressed in black with a black veil on her face, holding with each of her hands two of her little boys as they go out to the cemetery and they have the funeral. And I'm sure that everybody there, all the other ministers who had served with her husband said, what we all say at a funeral, I'm going to pray for you. But then she had to turn and go home. Now, here's the thing. We're a very young church, and a lot of you haven't experienced this, but some of us have experienced something, and, and it goes like this. When someone you love very much dies, I think it's either the grace of God or adrenaline or maybe both of those things that come together that allow us to get through the funeral service. And you know that someone perhaps passes suddenly or maybe you have a little bit of warning, but somebody you love dies. And you find a way to go to the funeral home and make the arrangements and buy the casket and, and answer all the funeral director's questions about what you want in the service. And then you have relatives come in the house and then perhaps there are dinners to go to. And, and finally you find a way to get through the service. And everybody looks at you and says, wow, she's really holding up well. Oh, wow, he's really holding up well. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's like somehow there's a strength that you have to make it through. But I've watched this 
time and time again working with so many families and seeing this in my own family. One of the most difficult things that you have to do is when you've gone to the last service and you've had the last dinner and you've said goodbye to the last relative and put them on a plane, when you have to go back home to a house and that house doesn't have somebody who's very important to you anymore. If you've ever been there and some of you are nodding and shaking your head at me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is one of the coldest, darkest moments of grief when you have to go back home. And so I want you to get this in your mind. Here is a woman married to a pastor. They're broke. They don't have enough money to get through. They borrowed up to their, up to their eyebrows. And then the man dies, and she goes out to the cemetery with two little boys and comes back home. But to her surprise, her house is not unoccupied because on the steps of her house is a man with a crossed arm who is saying, you know, your husband borrowed money from me. You need to pay me what he owes me. And she said, but sir, I don't have the money to pay. And he said, well, you have two boys here. See, back in those days, there was no bankruptcy law. And so what would happen in a case like that, any tangible asset would be taken by the creditor. And she had two tangible assets. She had two sons. They could become slaves. He could, make, he could make them his personal slaves for six years until they paid off as much of the debt as was possible. Now, can you imagine this? This woman coming back home to a house that's empty. Her husband's not going to be there anymore. She's already been out to the cemetery, left his body in the dirt, comes home, and then a man is telling her, if you don't pay me what you owe me, I'm going to take your two boys. And not only does she have the grief of being bereft of her husband, she may not have her two sons. So a few moments ago, I asked you to pay attention to two words. You see, the first thing that you and I do in a crisis is she cried out. Remember this. The widow represents us in a crisis. Elisha represents God. Elisha was a prophet. A prophet's job was representing God to people. So in this interaction between this widow and Elisha, what we see is a prototype or we see a template of how we are to react to God when we get into a crisis. Now, here's what she, she did. First of all, she cried out to him. She cried out to God. And by the way, that's where you start. That's not where we finish, but that's where we start. If you're here today and you got a crisis and you don't know how you're going to get out of it, cry out to God. You say, well, I don't see why I should talk to God. I don't see what he's going to do. That's not necessary that we see what he's going to do. He has the ability to do what we don't think he can do. I had a privilege several years ago of watching a sermon or listening to a sermon preached by a great African-American pastor, Ken Ulmer. And Ken was telling the story about a couple of men going through an art gallery. And these two men stopped beside a picture and just lingered there and kept watching. It was a picture of a couple of men playing chess. And one guy clearly had won the game and leering. And the way the artist had represented him, as Bishop Palmer said, he was clearly the devil. And the other man looked distraught and downtrodden and defeated and in that picture, he said that represented us. And the game was over. And the title that the artist had given to the portrait was, or the picture, Checkmate. And so uh, he said there, the two men stood there and just kept looking. And it turned out that one was a world-class chess master. And his friend said, let's go look at other pictures. He said, no, there's something wrong here. I, I can't put my finger on it quite yet, but there's something wrong here. And his friend said, come on, let's, let's go. No, 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 there's something wrong here. And after a moment, he clapped his hands and said, I've got it. He said, that artist has either got to change this picture or he's got to change the title. And his friend said, what's that about? He said, well, because I've been watching this guy who's supposed to be losing, and, 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 I'm, and, and I've determined that his king has one more move. 
And as only Ken Omer could do, he began to work that. He began to talk about how throughout the ages God's people thought they were losing and it didn't seem possible, but they turned things over to God, only to discover that God as our king still has one more move. You know, He talked about Joseph in prison, looked like his life was over, but the king had one more move. And then he went to Daniel and said, Daniel was in the lion's den, looked like he was going to be dinner for those lions, but he said the king had one more move. And then he worked it all the way up to where he said Jesus was on the cross and they put his body in the grave and they thought he was finished, but he said on Easter morning, the king had one more move. I'll tell you, that lit me up when I heard that sermon. And that's the reason why you cry out to God, because the king has one more move. You may not have any more moves. You may be at the end of your marriage. You may be at the end of your money. You may be at the end of your rope, but the king still has one more move. So first thing that you do in a crisis is you cry out to God. Now, I want you to notice what comes next, because after you cry out to God, and you deal with the fact that you're in a crisis, you need to hear from God two questions. Let's go from crisis now to questions. The woman goes to Elisha, and she just tells him her story. She just says to him, my husband who served you is dead. You know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. She just spells out her problem, doesn't offer God any suggestions about how to deal with it. She just says, this is my problem. And that's what you should do because 1 Peter 5, 7 says, take all your cares and throw them onto God because you matter to him. But see, here's the problem, guys, and and I've shared with you from the beginning of this message, we need to understand how God works. If we don't know how God works, we'll sit in the rubble of a crisis and think that God is going to come do something about it, but we need to understand how he works. Now, Elisha, representing God, has two questions for the woman, and they're found in verse 2. Here is the first one. Now, hear these, please. What can I do to help you? Can you hear that coming from God if you're in a crisis? What can I do to help you? And then question two, tell me, what do you have in the house? Now, there's a balance to this. Because, see, when we're in a crisis, God will come and ask us both questions. Now, depending upon your personality type, you will tend to focus on one of those questions to the exclusion of the other. If you're here today with some personalities, you tend to focus on that first one where God is saying, tell me, what would you like for me to do for you? And so you say, God, here's what I'd like for you to do for me. But then you just sit down and don't, don't engage. And, and the problem is, you always wonder, why does God not help me? And the problem is you don't hear the second question. You know, it's the oldest joke in the world. I'm sorry to tell it because you all know it. But there were stories about the guy who was, you know, in a flood. And he was, he, the waters were so high, he was just sitting on the very top of his house. And he said, I'm going to pray and ask God to rescue me. And he prayed and said, God, would you please rescue me? A few minutes later, a boat came, you know, a guy in a boat came by and said, hey, would you hop in? I'll take you to safety. And the guy said, no, I'm going to ask God to rescue me. I've, I've, I'm, I'm trusting God. Boat went by. Another boat came by, and the same guy, you know, he was praying for God to rescue him. And, and the pilot of the boat said, hey, would get in. I'll take you to safety. No, 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 no. I, I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God. Another boat came by, and the same thing happened. No, 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 I'm trusting God. A few minutes later, he drowned. Got to heaven, he he said, God, I was trusting you. God said, hey, sent three boats by. (laughs) See, that's, but, and then we laugh at that a little bit, but a lot of times, that's what happens to us. We get into a crisis situation, and we say, okay, God is a God is the great helper in the sky, and he is saying, tell me what you would like for me to do for you, and so we're telling God, but we don't hear that second question. 
What do you have in your hand right now that you're willing to release? Now, I tend to be the other personality. I don't hear God saying, what would you like for me to do for you? I hear that second question, what do you have? Now, that leads me a lot of times to worry and bite my nails because I look at what I have and it's not adequate. And I don't hear God over here saying, hey, Mark, wait a minute. I want to know what you have. I want to know what you're willing to put into the game. But by the same token, what would you like for me to do for you? When you're in a crisis, we must hear both questions. What would you like for me to do for you? And what do you have that you're willing to release? Now let's go to a place. Let's, ask, let's deal with that second question. If God has all power and all resources, why does he ask us what we're willing to give? I don't know the question, answer to that question for sure. Maybe, maybe it's just he wants to know if we're serious. Maybe he wants to know if we have any skin in the game. I don't know. Maybe it's because he wants us to be clear where our dependence is, and if we're holding on to some resource that we don't want to turn loose of, maybe God wants us to throw it down like Moses had to throw his rod down. Maybe God's, it could be as simple as the fact that God's just not interested in helping stingy people. I don't know. But I, th I think it's this. I think, and I wish I knew how to communicate this. This is my third time to do this message, and all three times I think I've failed to communicate a point. I'm going to try again. I think God wants us to understand that he has already equipped us with what we need, that we already have it. But it's just a matter of him linking up with what we have. See, it's like the little boy with the sack lunch. When Jesus needed to feed 20,000, all he needed to start with was five loaves and two fish. Now, clearly, he didn't have to have those, but he wanted to work with this little kid. There wasn't enough in that one sack to feed everybody, but he had everything he needed if Jesus came along and helped him. And I believe that's what God is trying to say to us, that we are already equipped with everything that we need. And that goes so counter to what we're thinking, because we're thinking, I don't have what I need. It strikes me that this woman could have overthought this, because all she had was a little flask of oil. Because Elisha said, what do you have in the house? Just a little flask of oil, a little flask of olive oil. And, and what I think she could have said is, why does God want my last flask of oil? I mean, clearly it's not enough to pay our debt. If he can't help me without taking my last oil, this is crazy. Now, guys, this is what, what's, what strikes me as really big right here. Elisha has asked her what she has, a little flask of oil. If she holds back on God at this moment, now I want you to hear me, please. Nothing happens here. She's still a widow. She still has two boys. Mama's still going to take her boys. If she holds back on God at this moment, nothing happens. What do you want me to do, God asks. And what do you have that you're willing to release? I guess I'm pausing for a moment because I want to make sure that I, I really don't want to tell the story. But I, I think there's a reason why God wants us to release what we have in our hands. Every time I've gone through a crisis, I've wanted to just fall apart. And in the middle of that crisis, God will call me to serve somebody else. I don't want to go into this. I've talked to you about it before. I'd like to forget about it and just move on. But I remember in 2004 when we were becoming a very different kind of church. 
And I wanted us to be the kind of church that built bridges to people who were spiritually unresolved. And I remember we had about 1,200 people coming on a weekend. And because of how we changed as a church, about 800 people walked away over the next four years. But I remember that at the worst part of that in 2004 when we were changing directions, I was part of a meeting with some of the leadership of our church at that time. And it had been a well-rehearsed meeting, to my discovery when I got there. And basically they were... They were just ripping me up one side and down the other. I've never heard, I, they said things about Mrs. Hoover's son I never thought I'd ever hear. I mean, I, I mean I, I, no one had ever really criticized me face to face for 19 years. And I mean, it was an awful meeting. I'd never been through anything like that in my life. And I thought, all I'm trying to do is follow God. And I can still remember, I, I didn't live very far from the church in those days. I can remember the drive home. I was almost in paralysis. I mean, I... Never been through. I was trying to figure out what to do. I went into my house. I couldn't even talk to Mary Alice. I went straight down to my basement, sat in my lazy boy, and I just, I was like in shock. And I'm thinking, God, how am I going to go on here? I mean, I've never been through anything like that. And at that moment, my cell phone rang, and a pastor friend of mine who was in a western state conducting a conference called me sobbing. He was in a hotel room, and he said, Mark, I haven't given in, but he said, I've been tempted to view pornography. And he said, I just need somebody to talk to. And I knew you loved me. And he said, I know you're somebody who wouldn't gossip about me, and you're somebody who would love me and help me. And would you talk to me? And I thought, this is a Salvador Dali moment. This is surreal because here I am sitting here. My world is falling apart. And for 45 minutes, I'm talking to a pastor friend as if nothing had ever happened to me. And that I've watched time and time again in my life. When I hit a crisis, God calls for me to give. He is still saying, Mark, what do you have in the house? What do you have that you're willing to release? And I am convinced that the reason why God does that is he wants us to understand that if we will do what we do, he will do what only he can do in our lives. I'm convinced of that. So now we've, we've seen the crisis and the questions. Now let's move down to the challenge because Elisha said, okay, here's the plan. <laughs> let's read about it. Verse 3. Go around and ask all your neighbors for money. Is that what it says? Sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> I mean, it's just like I'm started a, I've started a foundation here. And that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, just that didn't happen to be God's plan right then. Go around and ask all your neighbors for money. And that's what they were expecting. The neighbors were expecting that. You know? Go around and ask all your neighbors for oil. I like that. I'm from Texas. Down there, we call it the oil business. You guys who know how to talk in the Midwest call it the oil business. But uh, So, I mean, you know, Elisha could have said, just go ask for help. But let's read it the way it's written. Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty Jars. Now I'm thinking if there's one thing this woman has already, she has empty jars. That is her problem. Her jars are empty. And I just, I, I, you know, I talked last week about God having a museum where we can watch this stuff when we get to heaven. I promise you, I want to see this because I just see this woman in my mind as she's going around knocking on doors. And, and our neighbors expect her to come by and ask for help. And she comes and, and knocks on the door and says, you know, I'm just, I'm just looking for something. I want to know, do you guys have any empty jars that we could borrow? And they said, poor Sarah, she's lost her mind. And Elisha said, hey, don't just borrow a few. I mean, fill up your house with empty jars. Now, hang with me, please, because this is big. Notice Elisha asked her to do something very peculiar. Go into your house and shut the door. 
Guys, when, I, when I'm bringing a talk to you and I'm going to show you something that God will do for you, I'm always concerned because I get to moments that are deal breakers. And we're at one of those deal breaker moments right now because Elisha said, shut the door. Now, here's the thing. In the Bible, there's a continuity. In the Bible, doors are always about opportunity. Anytime you read about a door in a Bible, it has to do with opportunity. And open doors, open opportunity. Closed doors, always opportunity lost. For instance, um, there's the story of the five wise and the five foolish virgins. You know the story, the five foolish didn't have oil. They went to find oil. When they came back, the door was closed. There wasn't any opportunity to get in. When Noah was preaching at the ark, he, the door was left open for several days. There came a time when God closed the doors too late, couldn't get into the ark anymore. There was a story where Jesus was dealing with a little girl who had died, and he, he said, she's not dead, she's just asleep, and they started laughing at him. Jesus kicked him out of the room and closed the door. Now, the thing about this is, if you want to live in a world where God does the extraordinary, you have to believe that he can do the extraordinary. Because if you don't believe he can do the extraordinary, God will close the door on you. And you'll, you, you know, here's the thing. There are some people, I, listen, I have lived in a life, I've lived a life of miracles. This is my 28th year to be leader of this church. I'm not a great leader. In fact, my wife always says if she ever writes a book, she's going to call it, I had a front row seat for all the miracles. But you know, one thing I've watched is there are some people that don't believe that God does the extraordinary. I mean, they always think there's some sort of natural, whatever that is, some sort of natural explanation. Or they think there's no, some, it's just the law of averages. Are you lucky? Are you smart? I, I promise you, I mean, and this again, this is more than you want to know. But as God has done such extraordinary things at New Spring, I'm getting to be an elder statesman among all these pastors. And they call me every week. And I sit in a room with young pastors. And here's what they want to ask me. Tell me the, tell me the plan of New Spring. <laughs> plan? Give me the strategic, what was your strategic model? They, they, they want to know, you know, tell me, tell me how you did this. And, and I want to say, wait a minute, we hit the wall. We didn't know how to go forward, but God came and did a miracle. And so you just have to trust God, do the extraordinary for you. You got to care about the right things and then trust God. And I'll watch their eyes glaze over because they've been to all these conferences where they've heard that there's some sort of template. You know what happens when those eyes glaze over? God closes the door. Got to leave the room. You know what happens? The churches never go anywhere because they're looking for a template. They're looking for a model. How about you? I mean, are you one of these people that just says, I, I don't know that God can really do the extraordinary? And here's the thing. What will happen is your life will corroborate that because God will always close the door on you and not do miracles. In fact, the Bible says about Jesus when he was in his hometown that he didn't do many miracles there because of his, their unbelief. Elisha knew these townspeople would never understand what was going to happen, so he said, just go close the door. Guys, i got to tell you, this is personal for me. I want to be in the room where God is doing the extraordinary. I don't want him ever to kick me out of the room and close the door on me. I want to be there. I want to be in faith. Now, what are the empty jars about? I'm getting close to the end here. That sounds like the craziest thing in the world, doesn't it? I mean, I see this widow in my mind. She's about to lose her two boys. Her husband's dead. And a man of God, she asked him, what do I do? And he said, go fill your house with empty jars. Now, now our house <clears throat> looks like, you ever see that show where the people just can't get rid of anything? It looks like she just can't get rid of empty jars because they're everywhere. They're, they're, they're up to her neck in the empty jars. What's that about? Oh, it's about three powerful things. That if they will converge in your life and my life, 
we can live a life of watching God do extraordinary things. Here's the first thing that it's about. It's about obeying God when it doesn't make any sense. Now, here's the thing I've watched about obeying God. is so many times it doesn't make sense. We live in a broken world, so when God comes to us with a whole solution, it, it seems backward in a broken world. For instance, God tells me if I want to receive, I need to give. If I want to be the most important person in the room, I need to be everybody's servant. God tells me that if somebody hits me, I am to turn the other cheek. God says if somebody hurts me, I am to forgive them. That that makes no sense. And and throughout my life, I've always said I'm great at seeing God out my rearview mirror. I'm just not very good at seeing him out my windshield. And by that I mean I'm not very good at understanding him in the moment. But the thing about God's plan is that it always makes sense at the end. You know, when this woman is filling up these empty jars with God's supernatural supply of oil, we're going to say, why didn't she get more empty jars? I remember when I, we, years ago, we found this land. It'll, it'll be 20 years ago in, in uh, 2015. And uh, I remember going to our church that was centrally located in the middle of Wichita and saying, hey, God has a new vision for us. It's K96 and 21st Street. You would have thought I wanted to move to Missouri. There's nothing out there but milo fields. But some of those same people years later were like, why didn't we buy more land? And, and I don't blame them for that. It's just that God's will always sounds peculiar at first. It, it just makes sense at the end. Now, if you want to see God do extraordinary things, you have to obey him. Let's go to the second thing, though. And it's the biggest thing that I'm going to say this weekend And for some of us, it'll be the biggest thing I say at New Spring this whole year. What's the empty jars about? Second thing. Before I I tell you, let let me set it up. This world embraces adequacy. This world is in love with adequacy. That's what, and, and in a legitimate sense. That's what resumes are about. You, you, give, you give somebody your resume, a lot of you are looking for work in, these, in this environment, you give somebody your resume, what are you saying to that person? Hire me, I'm adequate. Here's where I went to school, here's my work experience, I'm adequate. That's a, that's a legitimate way of embracing adequacy. And, and, and so, and, and, and that's, that's part of our world. I mean, would you go into apply for a job and say, God, I really don't have what it takes to do this job, I don't have enough education, I'm not smart enough, I don't... I don't know, this job is way too big for me. You wouldn't do that if you were applying for a job because you understand this world embraces adequacy. If, if you're applying for a mortgage, as some of you might be doing right now, uh, this world embraces adequacy, as you'll discover. They want to know when you apply for a mortgage how much money you make, how expensive is your house, how much skin do you have to put into the game. I mean, would you go apply for a mortgage and say, I don't make enough money to buy this house. I know I don't make enough money to buy this house. And um, I'm not even sure I'm going to have a job next week. You see what I mean? Our world embraces adequacy. We've been taught to do this. Now, that's fine if you're dealing with other people. The problem is when you and I start dealing with God. Because the second powerful thing, think about this. Work with me for a moment. Why did God ask this woman to fill her house with empty jars? What God loves when we deal with him is to, here it is, to embrace our inadequacy. God loves that. Could I tell you something today? 
But before I do, let me read a verse too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, here's the reason for it. The Bible says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, in, in jars of clay, and the reason for that scripture in the New Testament, let me give you this real quick. There was no insurance back in Bible days, so if people had a diamond necklace or a pearl necklace or, or expensive ring or something, obviously it was attractive to thieves. And so one way that people would hold on to their valuables is in their house, in their closet somewhere, they had rows of nondescript clay pots. They weren't, they weren't, art, they weren't artistic, they weren't painted, they were, just, they were for holding junk. And so what wise homeowners would do who had something very precious is in those clay pots, they would select one and drop their diamond necklace or drop their pearl necklace in that clay jar so that if a thief came in the house, the thief would never suspect that that was where the valuables were. And Paul is talking about the power of God in our lives, and he's comparing us to nondescript clay pots, and he said, we have this, we have this treasure in our jars of clay so that it will show that if there's anything extraordinary, well, here's the thing. Someone has said if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. And if somebody found treasure in jars of clay, they would know someone deliberately put it there. And you see, when God does what he does in our lives and people see us and they know that we're jars of clay and they see something happen that cannot be explained, they say, you know what, that isn't her. Something bigger than her is at work here. That isn't him. Something bigger than he is at work here. Let me tell you something. And guys, let me tell you no matter how far you drove today, it's going to be worth driving here for just to hear this. You're not big enough to live your life. You don't have the resources to live your life. You say, Mark, I'm adequate. I trust myself. <laughs> You'll get to the end of that rope. This life is bigger than you are. I don't have time to tell the story, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, years ago, we used to be on the radio here in, in Wichita. And we were on it every day. And one thing I learned about that is you burn through archives real fast when you got a daily broadcast. And so we went through years, 20 years of my preaching, several times over on that daily broadcast. But I, I used to wonder, you know, who really listens to this? Because it was on a religious station. One day there was a 33-year-old man driving the streets of Wichita. He made a high seven-figure income. He was so successful in his business. He only worked six months out of the year. He played the other six. He was good-looking, had girlfriends, had houses, had condos, had boats. He was living the beautiful life. But he'd also bought a 357 Magnum that he had loaded in his car. And he was driving around the streets of Wichita thinking to himself that he was going to drive out to a secluded area in the farmlands outside of Wichita and put that 357 Magnum in his mouth or up against his temple and pull the trigger. As he was driving around that day, he happened to turn on the radio <laughs> of all stations he got ours. I was doing a sermon series that I think I preached maybe 10, 15 years ago on the Holy Spirit. It was a total series for Christians. And I was explaining how that God gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us as a way of showing us that you can't live life by yourself. You're not strong enough to live life by yourself. All he got was the tail end of that. He thought he would listen to the rest of that broadcast before he committed suicide. And then he thought, you know what, I want to find out where that church is. And to his utter amazement, when he got to the end of the broadcast, he discovered we were in Wichita. And so he got the name of the church, looked up our phone number, and called our office and got a hold of one of our secretaries. And here's what he asked her. 
He said, is this the church with the pastor who says you can't live life by yourself? She said, sounds like my pastor. And he said, uh, do you think there's any chance he would talk to me? That was a Tuesday, I remember. Because I was driving around, got a phone call from the secretary. And she said, is there any way you come in? I said, yeah, I'll come in and talk to him. And I still remember as he sat in my office and told me his story. And I, tell, I told him, I said, you're not big enough to live life by yourself. Your big money, your big houses, your big boats, they don't give you what you need to live life. You need somebody bigger than you are in your life. And I watched him as he got on his knees by my coffee table and prayed and received Christ as his personal Savior. A few weeks later, we baptized him. And, and then he was at New Spring for a while. And then he had to move to Illinois. And I remember in my office, I have a very expensive antique that he brought by my office on the last day. And when I look at that, I don't think about how much that antique is worth. I think about a 33-year-old guy who was driving the streets of Wichita with a loaded 357 Magnum that was going to take his life. And all he ever heard was, you're not big enough to live life by yourself, and you're not either. And you know what? The smartest thing that you and I can do is to embrace our inadequacy. I mean, see, here's the thing. When this woman is standing there with a house full of empty jars, she is celebrating her inadequacy. She is celebrating the fact that she doesn't have the resources. It is a way of her standing back in an act of worship and saying, God, I am willing to tell anybody I'm not big enough to live life by myself. Let me tell you something. In the 28 years that I've been leader here at New Spring, I've seen God do extraordinary things. And if you get me alone, I'm a storyteller. You can tell that from listening to me talk. And here's, here's the thing. If you want to hear my stories, I'm not going to tell you stories of how smart I was. I'm not going to tell you stories of how good my strategic leadership was at key moments. I'm going to tell you stories about when I hit the wall. I'm going to tell you stories when I was about to do the wrong thing. I'm going to tell you stories when I had no idea what to do. But then God stepped in. Those are the stories that I like. Why? Because I have learned to embrace my inadequacy adequacy. Because when God does it, it is so blessed to say, hey, I didn't do that. God did that. Are you willing to do that today? She embraced her inadequacy. Thirdly, here are the three things that came together. She obeyed when it didn't make sense. She embraced her inadequacy. There's expectancy. You know, she didn't know what God was going to do. It's really cool. Let's read the story together. She left him, that's Elisha, and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Well, the fourth word I want you to think about is miracle. Because when she, when she obeyed God, borrowed the empty jars, when she embraced her inadequacy and she had a spirit of expectancy, God came and did what only God can do. Now, I don't have time to develop this, but this will help, I believe, today because some of you are going through a crisis. Now, work with me for a moment. When this woman first goes to Elisha, she would have been perfectly content if Elisha had just gotten the creditor off her back. If he had just said, I'm going to get a restraining order against this creditor, and he's not going to be able to bother you anymore, she'd have been fine with that. But she'd have still had her debt, and she wouldn't have had living expenses. But now what does God do? God allows a crisis to boil up. And she obeys God, and she embraces her inadequacy. And in expectancy, God comes along. Did you read a moment ago? Not only did she have enough oil to pay her debt, she had, an oil, she had enough oil for living expenses. 
See, here's the thing that I've learned, and I wish I knew how to communicate. I have watched, and, and trust me, I don't want crises in my life. I'm human enough, and I'm, I don't have any death wish. I don't have any crisis wish. But here's what I've discovered is that God oftentimes uses crises in my life to disguise opportunities. In fact, oftentimes the greatest things that God has done in my life have been through a crisis at first when I thought I was going to go under the water. Sometimes crises, and I don't think God brings them into our lives. I think it's just a broken world. But God will use a crisis in order to bless us. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for what we've learned. And I pray that you'll help us to leverage these important principles as we face life's difficult moments. Help us to remember to cry out to you and to listen to your questions, that you want to help us, but you also want to know what we have that we're willing to release. And then, God, I pray that you'll help us to obey you even when it doesn't make any sense and to be willing to stand before you and joyfully admit that we're inadequate and then to be expectant, not knowing exactly how you're going to resolve it, but just trusting you so that you can do what only you do in our lives. Help us to look to you. We thank you, God, for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Ryan. Thanks for coming.